father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? Welcome to What's Lightsabers Precious? The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopodcast, where we waste time in fictional wikis. I'm Ryan. And I'm Joanna. I'm going to be right up front. I don't have any Lord of the Rings news today, Ryan. Oh, I have some Star Wars news, though. Oh, do you? Is it another Mark Hamill tweet? No, no, it's much less important. Um, it's our first reveal of John Favreau's live-action Star Wars show, which is starting filming this very week. Oh, what do we know? It's called The Mandalorian, which is, in case you don't know what that is, that's like Boba Fett. It takes place three years after Return of the Jedi. There's only one image of it so far. It's got a, it's a Mandalorian guy with like a cool like brown Mandalorian suit. Um, there's lots of good talent attached to it. Uh, Taika Waititi is going to work on it. <gasps> um, like people Whoa. like Dave Filoni, who did the Clone Wars cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who are going to be tied to the show. So can Taika Waititi be a character in it? And can the character be his character in the last Thor movie? I'm hoping he's the Mandalorian because... If you remember, they made him New Zealand actor, Tamora Morrison. Oh, that's true. With Dad! Yeah, so Mandalorians might all be New Zealanders. I would love that. I love the way They're probably cast a younger, cooler guy, but I'd love to have him be like a cool, like funny mentor guy or something. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers Uh, crossed for that. That would be so sweet. So we'll see how that goes. In other news, I started reading an official Star Wars manga that's being published in Japan. Really? Called Lost Stars. And is it like by an actual Japanese artist? Well, it's it's an adaptation of a YA book, but it's by Japanese artists and Japanese writers. And the story is about two childhood friends. One becomes an officer in the Empire and her friend becomes a rebel. And they kind of have this this star-crossed lovers thing going on. It's it's like the color of friendship a little yeah exactly (laughs) exactly like that right it's fun in that you get to see things from like the ground perspective like the one friend she's an imperial officer and shows how like freaked out everybody is of darth vader on her level and like the one guy is a rebel he used to serve in the death star and then he has to deal with like all of his friends on the death star dying after that gets blown up and it's like how do i become a rebel when the rebels kill my friends and it's pretty interesting it's kind of fun okay i like it I like the art a lot. Mm-hmm. Who's yep. drawing it? Anybody I'd know? I don't know. He is, they're doing it as a webcomic in Japan, but uh, I think it's being published in English now as well. So I want to like read it. it. It sounds really good. I've been reading a free translation online, unofficial translation, but... Way to not support the art you love. But, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll buy the digital copy of this. That's really neat news, actually. Can we post a link uh, to that on our Facebook page? Absolutely. All right. Well, Ryan, I have a question for you. What's that? Are you ready to get spooky? Hey, no, I'm scared. Well, too bad, because we're going to jump right into Spooky October, because it is Spooky October. Oh my god, you're right. It's October, and it's spooky. Even though we've already had Spooky August and Spooky September, we are doing Spooky October. Oh, it's spookier Those than ever. Those are just amuse-bouche. Uh, of the meal, and, and this is the main course. Yeah, we're in our spooky... Entree! Dra- spooky studio has been converted into a Dracula tower, and we're surrounded by glowing pumpkins and wisping spirits and howls of wolves Things in the distance. Things in random bubbling liquid fluid and, and eldritch wailing and rooms yeah. that are just, like, unusually cold, and you can hear EVPs. And- Ooh, is that a creature being chained down to a slab? I don't know. It might be. I'm not getting close to find out, because it's spooky October. It's spooky. Spooky October, everybody, and I'm going to start with a spooky October poem. Ooh, I like it. Let's hear it. Cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed. Never till the sun fa- 
sails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still be gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. You like ghost stories, Mr. Turner. You're in one. <laughs> I didn't really mean to say it in that voice, what but I, I kind of did. I don't know what I was going for. All right. Okay. Did it sound like remotely spooky? Yeah, it did. Yeah. All right, cool. Did it sound like an old pirate scene. It sounded like doing Jeffy Rush. Yeah, do Jeffy Rush, yeah. What is, what is that poem talking about? Any any ideas? Any, it's kind of a spooky prophecy, sounds like. Uh, there's reference to bones and being under stone, so I reckon there's some skeletons or corpses that maybe are coming back to life under the Dark Lord. You're kind of right about that. This is about the Barrow Whites. Oh, cool. The Whites of the Barrow. Now, you might have heard something similar to this poem in the Peter Jackson version of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but they give it to Gollum. Oh, okay. They have Gollum say, Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be travelers far from home. They do not see what lies ahead when sun has failed and moon has dead. Which is like... A version of this. Okay. A is version it, That's of when they go this. to the Dead Marshes? Yeah, right. And that's when okay. Frodo wakes up in the middle of the night and he calls him Smeagol and Gollum's like, what did you call me? Okay, okay. And it's, you know, it's a good scene, Um, but they randomly have Gollum reciting poetry. I don't think a poem's that different from a riddle. Yeah, that's true. Some of his riddles do rhyme. Maybe, they, maybe it's something that he learned back when he lived by the riverbank. He's got a good mind for it. Barrel Whites, as we have discussed in previous episodes, are evil spirits that are sent to dwell in the Barrow Downs mm-hmm. by the Witch King of Angmar during his wars with the Kingdom of Arnor. So, in case we have forgotten, right, so Witch King of Angmar... Yep. That is the leader of the Nazgul. Yes. And Arnor is the kingdom of the Dúnedain, a.k.a. like the people of Númenor who survived the sinking of the island. That's their kingdom in the north, right? Yep. There's Gondor in the south, Arnor in the north. And then you'll remember that the Witch King of Angmar attacks them. It eventually splits into three kingdoms, and then the whole damn thing falls. You got that, everybody? Map in your head? You're taking notes? I hope you are. We've said it before. I okay. mean, we have said it before. I don't, I'm just but it is hard for me to remember, so that's okay. why I'm reminding everybody. Else. The Witch King of Angmar sent these whites to the Barrow Downs, and they remained there long after the realm of Angmar itself had collapsed. Okay. So they just hung around. Now, to the listeners who maybe don't know, what's a Barrow Down? Okay, so the Barrow Downs were east of the Shire. Yeah. And they were a rich series of hills, so they're basically like giant, we would say, tumuli. Ooh, that's a $10 word right that's there. That's a $10 word. And in those tumuli, the most ancient men to come to that region had buried their dead. A bunch of tombs. Yeah, a bunch of tombs. And they have barrows if you go to England. Oh, okay. I went to one with my uncle when I was there. Do you see any whites? I did not see any whites. I didn't know barrow whites at the time. I was only oh, 10. bummer. Unfortunately, that was about two years before I read Lord of the Rings. Otherwise, I might have appreciated it more. They only showed up to those who believe. And you didn't believe. I didn't believe. I didn't have a child's mind. No. I had a cynical 10-year-old's mind. This was what they did. They constructed these giant hills, earthworks, stone circles, and they put their dead in them. This is a real thing that happened in Anglo-Saxon society. And you're saying whites. Are we talking about white people? Yeah, we're talking about, he said said white, he's like, get down there and gentrify the hell out of it so none of the hobbits can afford to live there. So not that kind of white. I can tell you're being sarcastic with me. I'm being sarcastic with you. Being a bit facetious. I am saying white, W-I-G-H-T, and we will define that in just a second, but first I want to talk a little bit more about the Barrow Downs. This ancient tradition of burying the dead entombed in barrows carried on for thousands of years, and it was practiced by the Dúnedain of Cardolan. 
Eridolon was one of the three kingdoms into which Arnor split. Mm-hmm. It was practiced by them when they occupied the area in the first half of the Third Age. That's like thousands of years this was this practice was going on. Oh, okay. But it's right next to Hobbit Town, so like it, well, if you'll remember, the hobbits didn't really show up to inhabit that area until the Third Age, until Cardolan had fallen. Oh, okay. They weren't really like, much of a presence in that area. And so they knew that there were a bunch of barrows mm-hmm. to the east of where they lived, and they knew it was creepy as hell, but that was about all they knew. Okay. Like I said, Tolkien was probably inspired by real areas. There's one picture that they have in Encyclopedia of Arda of the Whispering Knights, which is part of this prehistoric standing stone complex known as the Rollwright Stones in Oxfordshire. It's a little like, so, looks kind of like Stonehenge, maybe? It's, I don't know that I would call it like Stonehenge. That's probably a little bit too grandiose for what it is, but you know, oh, okay. it's kind of cool. It's like these standing stones are leaning drunkenly against each other, like a bunch of guys who just got out of the pub and they're in the middle of this field and, and it's not entirely clear what they're doing there. But it's clear that... Humans brought them there. It's clear that humans brought them there. This would not form naturally. Right. This would have been well known to Tolkien, and that's probably part of the inspiration for the ancient monuments among the Barrow Downs. So like I said, these were in the former kingdom of Cardolan, which fell during the wars against Angmar. And at that point, the Witch King of Angmar sent evil spirits to inhabit the Great Barrows of the Doubt. So there were already dead bodies there. There were bones, basically. Wake them up a little bit. Actually, it wasn't the spirits of the dead people themselves. He sent down demonic spirits to inhabit these dead bodies. Oh, okay. And become sort of undead. I see. So it actually had nothing to do with the people that once lived in those bodies. They've passed on. Like a bunch of stolen cars. A bunch bunch of stolen cars. If those cars were really crappy and kind of rotten and buried under the ground. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what do you you call, what do you call a, a, a white who drives a car? Um, somebody who never gets pulled over by the police, even when they deserve to. Oh, let's try this again. Where does a white like to drive his car? Um, to Whole Foods on a Sunday morning. To the wheelbarrow downs. Wheelbarrow. Wheels. Because the car has wheels? Yeah. Well, Ryan, that's very clever. I'll try it again later. That's very clever. (laughs) Okay, no. I mean, I like what you got here. You got all the ingredients. You just got to assemble them correctly. But you're on the right track. So they first appeared in the Barrow Downs, these these Barrow Whites, these evil spirits inhabiting these long-dead bodies. After the Dunedain of Cardolan succumbed to the ravages of the Great Plague, if you remember, mm. that was like a major contributor to them falling to Angmar. And so basically, the Witch King of Angmar dispatched all these sorcerers to put demons into the inhabitants of the Barrows. That was in order to keep the Dunedain from returning and re-inhabiting that land. Do sorcerers exist in Middle-earth? Yes, they exist. What would you call Saruman? A wizard. Yeah, he's a wizard. Okay, so he's, like, kind of special because he's, like, a Maiar, and sorcerer. so are the rest of the wizards. But, yeah, apparently sorcerers also exist. People who use dark magic. Like human magic users? Human magic users. Interesting. Presumably, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they were orcs. I don't know. It just says sorcerers. So the whites, they're, they're spirits in dead bodies. They are demonic spirits in dead human bodies. That's way different than the whites I know in Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, A Song of Ice and Fire. It is, although it should be noted, though, that anytime anybody uses the word W-I-G-H-T to mean this sort of undead or wandering spirit, it comes from Tolkien. Because originally this word white, W-I-G-H-T, is derived from the Old English W-I-H-T. However, that word white 
had like nothing to do with evil spirits or ghosts. Mm. It just meant like a person, a creature, a thing. If you read anything in Middle English, for example, the Canterbury Tales, they will say white to mean like just any per like there was like no white there, right? Like nobody was there. Well, I hope there's no whites there. That'd be scary. Ha ha ha. It didn't mean that then though, if you follow. Right. So they didn't have any particularly sinister connotations. However, there was a related old Saxon word white, which literally meant thing, but it could also be used to refer to demons. Oh. So that might have been how Tolkien kind of like stuck a G in there and then use it to refer to like grave spirits. I see. Okay. If that makes sense. Now, the concept of a burial mound housing evil spirits was also not created from Tolkien, although he popularized it. The Barrowites are actually based on very similar creatures in Germanic mythology, and they were known as Draugar in Norse. They were Draugar. Now, this is like a D&D thing, right? Draugar? What I think of first is I think of Skyrim. Oh, are there Draugars in Skyrim? You go into, like, tombs all the time and you fight Draugars, which are like these desiccated corpses with with like spiked helmets and stuff. Okay, well you can thank Tolkien for that. Yeah, yeah. Like almost certainly you can. So there were said to be evil spirits, this is by the Norse, residing in the bodies of dead heroes and kings, and they could not be harmed by conventional weapons. And so then a hero would have to take them on as a show of strength and bravery. And killing them didn't necessarily mean they were dead for good. They could return to life if, like, certain rituals were not performed. The usual means of destroying it was to cut off its head and burn the body. So there's some George R. R. Yeah. Martin for you yeah. right there. Yeah. See, like, all ties together with world mythology. Is that the same in, in Middle Earth? No, in Middle Earth... The way they are defeated is by Tom Bobbitt singing at them. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's almost like getting your head cut off. Your almost like getting your head fire. You're going to make you wish you could cut your head off. This track is fire! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. They were metaphorically burned because this Tom Bombadil's track was so fire. This song is truly a heat rock. <laughs> yes. ah! Another probably related creature is from Germanic and Slavic folklore, and it was called the Mar or the Alp. Mm-hmm. And so this was like a vampire, and it would rise from its barrow to plague the sleeping and drink their blood. And they make edgy late night TV shows with their stupid opinions and bad documentaries about why religion is evil. Oh, you're talking about religious and Bill Maher? I'm talking about Bill Maher, the vampire-like creature that's known to rise from his barrow and do that stuff. I would entirely believe that. If somebody told me that Bill Maher lived in a barrow and instead of blood, he fed off like people's outrage at his hot takes, then I would believe that. Yeah. The way to vanquish these Maher or Alp was to open their barrow to the rays of the sun, which is another way in Tolkien uh-huh. you can defeat the barrow whites. Just open it to rays sunlight. of the sun. Okay. Sunlight. Now, this article from Tolkien Gateway also mentions the Japanese onyo, which are undead spirits that dwell in darkness and are affected by the sun. I really don't think that was in Tolkien's wheelhouse. Maybe he was aware of Japanese mythology, but like the Germanic and Norse stuff sounds a lot more yes. likely to me. I have no knowledge of the mystic orient. I mean, I could be wrong. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe he knew a ton. I'm not sure, but that wasn't really his area of focus. So. Well, Boromir was a samurai. We do know that. <laughs> he was a samurai with like a dragon tattooed yeah. on the side yeah. of his head and like a literal katana. That's how he described him. Tolkien was also inspired by an Icelandic saga, and this was called, I'm going to butcher this, so people from Iceland I'm very sorry. 
Romundar Saga Gripsonar, or the Saga of Romund Gripson. And Wikipedia says that this saga is not very well appreciated, but if there's one person who's going to appreciate the hell out of an obscure Icelandic saga, it's J.R.R. Tolkien. I like how the Wikipedia just throws shade on Like, no one really likes this one. No one really likes this one, but, you know, here's some stuff about it anyway. But this English nerd loves it. Here's this saga. Nobody gives a crap yeah. about it. Least of all us at Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so the saga that we have is about this guy called Hromander, who's serving this King Olaf, he's the king of the warriors, and Hromund has these battles with this berserker called Hrongvio, as well as with an undead witch king Ooh. called Thranin, who is a draugr. And Thranin has killed 420 men. Nice. Nice. Plays it. Including the Swedish king Seminger, with an enchanted sword called Mistletoe. <laughs> Shut up. It's <laughs> so cute. I know, it sounds really adorable. This is my sword, Mistletoe. After I kill you, I have to smooch you under it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently in Icelandic, it was uh, Mistletini? Mistletine? I don't know how to say it, but it you know, sounds a little cool. It's Mistletoe. And Thromund grapples with Thranin, and he wins, and he burns the body, and he takes Mistletoe. Phonetically, those all sound like... Tolkien names. They all sound like Tolkien names because dude loved Germanic mythology. I, I can see where he got some inspiration. Mm-hmm. An undead witch king. A sword you got a kiss under. <laughs> One of his classic motifs classic. having a kiss under swords. <laughs> well, everybody remembers that classic scene where, where Bilbo got away from Gollum by holding Sting aloft and then Gollum had to smooch him under it. But then when Gollum puckered up, Bilbo ran away. That was so cute. That was so cute. That was yeah. the cutest part of The Hobbit. <laughs> Now, the Barrel Whites themselves were shape-shifting beings of darkness, so similar to wraiths, and actually initially Tolkien seemed to suggest, this I mentioned so quickly in passing, but Tolkien seemed to initially think that the wraiths and the Barrel Whites were like of the same kin. Okay. Uh, He kind of abandoned that idea. Anyway, the characteristic of Shapeshifter allowed them to reanimate any life forms they wanted. So any pile of dead bones, Mm -hmm. you got like a dead parakeet or something, a wraith can jump into that. Wow. Do they have to be sticking one the whole time or can they jump around? I think they can theoretically jump around. I mean, they traveled from Angmar all the way down to the Barrow Downs. So, you know, like clearly they can move around a little bit independently, but only under cover of darkness because light destroys them. Right, okay. Now, the ones who attacked the four hobbits in The Lord of the Rings were the corpses of the kings of the barrows. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. And you'll remember... <laughs> you'll remember from Hobbitit. Yeah. Did they do it in Hobbitit? I think I just talked about it after we watched Hobbitit. Hobbitit. Yeah. I don't think they actually did this. But you remember from me talking about it, that the Barrel White would capture their victims, and strip them, dress them up in, like, kingly robes, drape them with, like, golden jewels, and then he would kill them with a sacrificial sword. I think he wants another body. I guess he does. Maybe that's why he dresses them up. He's a bit more like, fresh. You know, this one's getting a bit stiff. This one's like, getting a bit stiff. The clothes aren't looking so good. I'll get some new threads. I'll dress up this new body. I'll, like, bling it out. And then I will kill it with a sacrificial sword and jump on in. Yeah, sounds like a good good, good gig. And that's what you try to do. And that's why when the hobbits woke up, they're like, what am I wearing? Yeah. And you get this creepy image over your head of a ghost, like, dressing them up like little dolls while they're unconscious. That is pretty weird. That is extremely weird. I think that's one of the weirdest things that happens in Lord of the Rings that is not directly addressed. For what the hobbits knew, they knew that east of the Brandywine River, beyond the Old Forest, were the Barrow Downs, and those were ancient burial grounds of men in Middle-earth. In fact, the most ancient burial grounds of men in Middle-earth. And there were no trees there. There was no water there. There was only grass and turf covering these big dome-shaped 
tumuli. And they had on the top of the monoliths and great rings of bone white stone. Very spooky. So they, yes, very spooky. So there is a part, you know, in Lord of the Rings where the hobbits are wandering around and they come across one of these monoliths and they look at it and they just feel like really weird and spooked out. I bet, yeah. Kind of hypnotized. Now, we should mention that these type of whites were not exclusive to the Barrow Downs. Although that is like where a lot of them were deployed. Which King sent them other other places too? He may have. Yeah, he may have. So there was also this great city in the kingdom of Arthodyne. So there's Cardolan. Arthodyne was the, another one of mm-hmm. the three kingdoms that Arnor split into. Fornost was the city founded in the late Second Age. And for nearly 2,000 years, it was one of the greatest cities of the Dunedain in the north. But after Arnor dissolved into three lesser kingdoms, it was sort of reduced in status to where the seat of the kings of Arthodyne and who were the direct heirs of Isildur, right? So this is like where Aragorn traces his ancestry back. And Arthodyne fought long and hard against Angmar, but they eventually fell in the Third Age, 1974. Good year. Good year. Damn good year. Lots of good movies came out in 1974. Can't think of any offhand. I can't think of any offhand. I think I'm thinking of 1984. 1984 was a great year. 1984 was a great year for flicks. 1974, the Third Age, was a bad year for Arthodyne because it fell. Now, 1974, in the year of the Third Age, uh, Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, Blazing Saddles. Oh man, dope! Young Frankenstein. I told you a lot of good movies came out in 1974, and I was right. I didn't. I don't know the years, but man, there's some good stuff here. Yeah. See, Famine at the Paradise. So you know, at least they could enjoy all those sweet flicks. As they were, you know, dying of... Zardoz? Zardoz was the best. I bet that's why it fell, because everybody was so busy watching Zardoz, they didn't have time to defend their town. Yeah. Fornost fell about a thousand years before the end of the Third Age, and it just crumbled to ruin because it was deserted. Nobody moved back there. And by the time of the War of the Ring, very little was still there except mounds and ditches, and it became known as Deadman's Dyke. And the men of those later times, presumably the hobbits too, although I don't think they ever made it that far, were afraid to go there. Part of this was because the Lord of the Nazgul had occupied the city for a while. However, it might have been more than simply superstition. The name Deadman's Dyke might imply that the Witch King left evil spirits there, just like he did on the Barrow Downs. Yeah. So undead spirits running around. It also could refer to the fact that all the people who used to live there were dead. I think it's better as a spooky white town. I think it's better as a spooky white town. But we'll never know because none of the main characters in Lord of the Rings ever go there. We only get hints. Well, of course they wouldn't go there. There's scary whites there. There's scary whites there. And they'd had enough of scary whites dressing them up like dolls, putting jewelry on them. Absolutely. Trying to kill them with sacrificial swords. So that's whites. That's scary. Isn't that scary? That's frightening. Do you feel spooked? I bet you don't have anything in Star Wars that can be as spooky as that. Lucky for you, there is an entire series of stories set in the Star Wars universe that are so spine-chilling, so absolutely flabbergastingly scary, and 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 makes your skin crawl with fear that it's called Galaxy of Fear. An entire galaxy of fear? Okay, so Arl Stein, he only had one street. Yeah, he think about a whole galaxy. One street of fear. He had Fear Street. This is Fear Galaxy. We are ramping it up. We are really ramping it up. This is getting out of control. I'm not sure I'm ready for so an entire I, galaxy. I have a tale from the Galaxy of Fear. Submitted for your approval of the Midnight Society. Galaxy of Fear. Eaten alive. So, I should explain. Galaxy of Fear is kind of like the Star Wars version of Goosebumps. It came Ooh. out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. 
There's a bunch of them, and I read one for this week's episode of Spooky October. Now, was it as scary as your average Goosebumps book? Well, I'd say yes. Maybe even more so, because most Goosebumps books are not scary. <laughs> They're very Did good. any of the main characters find out that they were secretly dogs? None of them turned into a bee. So. <laughs> <laughs> turned into a bee. Why I'm afraid of bees because I was one. I forgot about the my hairiest adventure. Too. <laughs> my hairiest adventure is undoubtedly one of the best twists in all of Goosebumps history. No, no, in the no. last chapter, you find out the main character was a dog. This is a YA horror story called Eaten Alive. So uh, I have a prologue here. It's just one scene. Uh, it's at an Imperial laboratory. A scientist and Darth Vader himself. And so, do you want to act it out with me? Do we real get quick? to do Reader's Theater? Reader's Theater. I only have a few Reader's Theater this time, but you want awesome. to be the scientist or be Darth Vader? I'll be the scientist. Security door slid open with a hiss. A dark figure stepped into the laboratory where a single scientist stood over an examination table. On the table, something was alive. As the dark figure approached, the scientist did not turn around. Only two other beings in the entire galaxy had access to this hidden fortress, and he knew one of them had come to see him. Welcome, Lord Vader. Have you completed your research? The scientist turned. In his hands, he held a sharp, hooked instrument. Behind him, the creature on the table shuddered and then grew still. Very nearly. The first five stages of my experiment are underway. Soon I will be able to complete the sixth and final stage, and then, then I shall provide the Emperor with the greatest power in the galaxy. That claim has been made before. The Death Star was supposed to be the ultimate mechanical terror. <laughs> that battle station was a toy. My designs are not machines. I control the power of life itself. You are running out of time. Already your work may have been discovered. You mean by him? Don't worry about him. I will deal with him when the time comes. If this secret should leak as did the secrets of the Death Star, the Emperor and I will be most displeased. Then the Dark Lord turned away. The scientist stared at the armored figure, his eyes burning a hole into Vader's back. Soon, he thought, very soon, he would have the power to destroy even Darth Vader. Then he would take his place at the Emperor's side. He turned back to his experiments. He lowered his hooked blade. The creature screamed. Ooh, okay. Well, so far I have to say this is a lot scarier than any Goosebumps yeah. book. But. So now we get into our actual characters in chapter one. We get our protagonist here, uh, Tosh Aranda, age 13, and her brother, Zach Aranda, age 12. Okay, so we're sticking with the Goosebumps like everybody's about 12. Yes. These kids are from Alderaan, and unfortunately, they were off-world when it blew up, and so their family and all their friends are all dead. And that's really sad. And so they're orphans, and they're living on a spaceship called the Light Runner, with their uncle Hool. Hool. H-O-O-L-E. Hool. They live on board his ship with his stuffy droid DV-9, and Uncle Hool is this mysterious anthropologist type guy. He's not actually related to them in any way. He's married their aunt, who also died at Alderaan, and he's not a human either. Does kids he like, look like one? We'll find out very soon. The kids start this chapter by expositioning about where they came from. Oh, our parents are dead. It's so sad. And then they say, wait a minute, we don't know Uncle Hool's first name. Tosh is like, I don't really care, Zach. Like, <laughs> we don't know our uncle's name, but who gives a crap? So Tosh goes off to practice piloting in the cockpit, and Zach goes off to find his uncle. Be like, hey, uncle, what's your name? He goes to his uncle's library. He knocks on the door, and there's no answer. And he goes, Uncle Hool, are you there? And he opens the door, and it's not Uncle Hool, but instead a fanged, drooling monster that tackles oh him. Oh, my God! Just like in Goosebumps, every chapter has a cool cliffhanger. And that's the first one we got. Oh. So Zack is being tackled by a fanged, drooling monster. Chapter 2. The creature paused. It let go of Zack's shirt and took a step back. Then before Zack's eyes, its flesh began to quiver and crawl. The monster's entire body squirmed and changed shape. After only a few seconds, it had transformed into something close to human. 
but its dark gray skin and extra long fingers revealed to be quite different. Uncle Hool! Zack gasped. Uncle Hool is a Shido, which is a type of alien who can shapeshift into whatever they want. Man! So he didn't find out his first name, but he did find out that he could shapeshift into like a giant dog beast. Yeah. I have a short scene with Zack and Uncle Hool. I think it's kind of funny. Do okay. I be Zack or Uncle Hool? Um, I'll be Zack. Okay. He's a 12-year-old twerp who likes to skimboard, so oh, okay, I'll mind. do that kind of voice. Yeah. Sorry, I just didn't... I mean, I've never seen you do that before. It keeps my shape-changing skills in practice. Practice for what? Hool's gaze was like a blaster bolt for 18 annoying small boys. It's kind of funny Ooh. back and forth, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, Tosh is in the cockpit thinking about how much she didn't really like Alderaan anyway because she didn't have many <laughs> friends. She's kind of a weirdo. Oh, screw mean to me so screw them yeah she has this weird thing where she's able to like finish people's sentences and like see things coming before they happen i can you know if she's constantly finishing people's sentences i can kind of see why no one on alderaan liked her like she that would be very obnoxious. somehow she knew that alderaan blew up even though she was light years away so it's like super weird like how she can do how she do this uncle hool tells zach that they're heading to a planet called devourin and then tells him to go away okay. like he's gonna be like do you know anything about the planet devourin and zach's like no he's like go away yeah <laughs> So Zach has to read about it on his uncle's data pad. It, sounds, it turns out it's a beautiful world with oceans and forests and natives called the Enzine. And as he's reading, it suddenly pops up on the screen, Imperial orders and payment received. His <gasps> messages. Is his uncle working for the Empire? Uncle Hul gets all huffy and threatens his nephew. But not before the ship gets jolted by something mysterious. Oh my god. Wait, wow, this is coming at me like just too fast and heavy. So that's chapter two. Chapter three. That was only two chapters? Yeah. I'm already, my head is spinning. They rush to the cockpit, and they're hurtling toward a blue-green planet. They've come out of hyperspace somehow. The planet's gravity has pulled them out of it, and they're 15 minutes early. They realize this is devouring. It looks just like the picture in the data pad. But it's super weird. Like, why are we here so early? Why did it pull out of hyperspace? That's so weird. But, like, they had coordinates set, and they got pulled out 15 minutes early. And so now they're hurtling toward this planet, and their ship is taking a lot of damage in the process. They land at this starport, which is empty. No one is there. It's only them. Zack and Uncle Hool get out to look around. Tash gets a weird feeling of dread as soon as they land, like something's out there about to pounce. She calls out for her uncle, her brother, and the droid DV-9, but there's no response. She steps out of the ship and something cold and slimy drops on her neck! <gasps> it's Uncle Hool. She rips it off and... It's a flower lay? What the... The Enzine are here to greet them, and they put a flower lay on her. Why is a flower lay cool and slimy? Do they, like, slobber on it? I think they maybe licked it. <laughs> That's disgusting. So Uncle Hool and, and Zach are out here, and they have the flower lays on also, and they meet the Enzine. And they're these kind of short, chubby blue people with needles for hair. Just like real Hawaiians. And their ambassador is a man called Chewed. Hey, Chewed, <laughs> don't make it bad. Lick this lay and put it on some little kids. <laughs> That's beautiful. I know. I just made that up. Uncle Chewed. 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 C-H-O-O-D. So Uncle Hul checks out the You're ship. Such a chewed. Such a chewed blaster. <laughs> he checks out the ship and Uncle Hul says the ion stabilizer is fried. Yes, Chewed, if the Enzyme can help him out. And they're like, no, we're peaceful. We don't like spaceships, but there's people in the cantina who might be able to help you. So they walk to the cantina. They pass a sign on the way that says, welcome to Devourin. Our goal is to serve. <clears throat> Wow, sounds like nice people. Zach tells his sister to cheer up, but Tosh is still getting really bad vibes. I'm going to make a, a prediction. Yeah. And this might end up being wrong. Devouring, I'm going to guess that when the sun goes down, these people start devouring well, other life forms. You, you might have to see and find out. Let's see. But I have a, do have a reader's theater here okay. as they walk through the town and kind of get explained of how things go. So I have Zach, I have Chewed, and I have Tosh. Who do you want to be? 
Oh my god, I really want to hear your voice for Chewed, so okay. I'm going to be Zach again. And you want to be Tosh, I'll too? be Tosh, yes. Is this the whole town? There's not even a good skimboard run! This is it. It's more like a village, really. Ever since Devourin was discovered, we Emzine encourage people to come to our planet. Inviting others to Devourin is our way of learning about the galaxy. How were the Devourin discovered? A cargo ship. It wasn't expecting Devourin to be here and was surprised by the planet's gravity. It crashed. When our rescue flight from Offworld came to investigate, they discovered our planet and our hospitality. Were there any survivors of the original crash? Only one. The rest died in the crash. How many settlers have come here since then? I mean, this place sounds pretty boring. Zack! There are a few hundred here. It's not a bad start for a planet that still hasn't been put on official star maps yet. We expect to have thousands before too long. Didn't you worry about Devourin becoming overcrowded? Oh, no, no, no. We enjoy it. We could never get our fill of visitors. They get to the cantina, which is called the Don't Go In, which I thought was kind of funny. That is funny. Yuck, yuck. And a scraggly guy, an old man, gets thrown out of the bar as soon as they arrive. And his name is Bebo, and he gets made fun of for telling all these crazy stories. That's probably the least sinister reason you could get thrown out of a bar for. Yeah, Tosh offers to listen to Bebo, but he gets freaked out by her and runs away to find his friend Lonnie. Okay. Yeah, that's going to come back later. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay, it is. All right. Uncle Hool says he has some business to attend to the next day, so he's going to offload the kids on to Chewed. Who offers to let them stay at his house. Hey, Chewed, please take my kids. The kids are super miffed, obviously. It's like a new planet. Their uncle's going away right away to do mysterious stuff he won't tell them about. And I like to stay with this blue creep at his house. <laughs> this blue hippie man named Chewed. As soon as they sit down at the table in the cantina, a loud voice says, Hool! And Tosh suddenly has a blaster pointed at her face. But she's not Hool, she's Tosh! No. Chapter 5. There's no fun twist this time. It actually is a blaster in Tosh's face. It's a gank killer. A gank killer? Gank. It's a species in Star Wars. They're like these known for being just murderous. Are they constantly killing lower level players? There's ganking people. There's ganking people. And the rest of her family also has blasters in their face, except for Uncle Hool, who's face to face with a hut <gasps> named Smada. Smada wants Hool to use his shapeshifting to assassinate one of his enemies. And Tosh says, he's a scientist, not a killer. Ho, ho, ho. There's a lot you know about your uncle you don't know, says Smada. Well, yeah, because he got paid by the Empire, so he's definitely in their employ. Smada threatens to vaporize Zack and Tosh if he doesn't go along with it. But then he's scared off by a cocky guy with a blaster, a Wookiee, a lady, and a blonde man with a lightsaber? Who are what? these guys? That sounds like a crazy band of people. And they got this gold protocol trade, this R2 unit? Like, wait. What kind of wackiness are they writing into those stories? This just in there for flavor? Who are these weirdos? Who are these freaks of nature? Yeah, it's the original trilogy gang. They're here. They tell the kiddos they're here to do some research for their friends, probably the rebels. Uh, meanwhile, they're served piles of free food by the Enzine. 3PO spends his time telling stories to DV9, but he's bored as hell. <laughs> so DV's like, oh, let me tell you about the time we went to the Dune Sea. And DV9 is like, like, shot like, up. Luke recognizes that Tosh is getting really bad vibes and talks to her about Jedi stuff. But then someone outside screams. Wow, does every single, it is like Goosebumps where every single chapter has to end on a cliffhanger. Aren't you hung over that cliff right now? I am hung over the cliff. Who's screaming? It's Bebo. He's back. He's screaming about his friend Lonnie who just disappeared. He's freaking out. Everyone's kind of like, don't worry about him. He's always screaming about disappearing people, you know, Shadow monsters and stuff. Don't worry about Bebo. He's an old crazy man. Turns out Bebo is actually the survivor from that crashed ship that first arrived on Devourin. Oh. He's the sole survivor. In the official report, he was the captain responsible for the deaths of all of his crewmates. And so the Anzi let him stay there to kind of stay out of the heat of the Empire. Got so it. He could get arrested. 
Tosh offers condolences and wishes she could help. He says, and Bebo says, it doesn't matter. Before long, you'll be dead. You're all going to die. Oh, so Bebo's, you know, a ray of sunshine. That's chapter he's, six. he's a happy drunk. That was our cool cliffhanger for chapter six. Wow. Chapter seven. While Han helps fix the light runner, Tosh and Luke go in the hollow net and look up the ship that Bebo was on. It's called the Misanthrope. It's been on the nose. Yeah, a little this bit. This is my ship, the SS. I hate people. <laughs> Two files come back. One's the official report, which is just as they describe one survivor. And there's also an imperial hidden code that comes back. Weird. Weird. It's almost like the Empire's involved somehow. So they fix the ship. Uh, Chewbacca helps Zack soup up his skimboard. Skimboard, by the way, is like a large-sized hoverboard that you can do stunts with. Like, so it's like Morning the Fly's board, but it's, like, bigger. It's bigger, yeah. yeah. It's bigger. It's bigger. Because this is, this is definitely a hoverboard waving contest. Yeah, yeah. After that, the original trilogy gang get onto the Millennium Falcon, and they leave. And that's it for them. That's it for them. Wow, what so a it's useful ni- cameo. It's nighttime, so the kids head to Chude's house. It's a big mud hut with dirt floors, and Chude tells them how great devouring is. Uncle Hul leaves for his mysterious business. <laughs> Tasha is suspicious why the Empire is interested in devouring, but Zach just wants to sleep so he can skimboard tomorrow. X Games! X Games! Extreme! Sponsored by Axe Body Wash! Double pits to chesty! It's pretty cool. Yeah. Tosh is awoken in the middle of the night by a weird slurping noise coming from the common room. She sneaks over to find that the room is empty, but Chute is behind her with concern. He explains she probably heard some stray animals and heads out on some also mysterious errands in the middle of the night. That's weird, right? That's weird, dude. She returns to the bedroom and she sees Axe sleeping. And someone leaning over him. Uh, a vampire! Chapter 8. It's Ganks again. Ganks! The gang killers. Tosh yells for Zack, and they scramble out of the house and into the streets. They run all the way to the cantina, and they hear the howling of Ganks behind them. They bang on the door and say they're being chased, and turn around to see... No, no one? What happened to the Ganks? Don't know. Ganks for the memories. Oh, Joanne, that was good. Chapter 9. Uncle Hul returns from... Uh, and tells the kids they've made them the most unpopular people in town. <laughs> Zach didn't actually see anything, he admits. Nobody saw any ganks, just you, Tosh. There weren't even any footprints. You idiots. You absolute fools. I love how their uncle comes back and he's like, Guess what? Everybody in town hates you! <laughs> Good job, kids. Good job, kids. Next morning, Zach feels guilty about throwing his system under the bus. Because he likes starships and physics and repairing things, but feelings? Ugh! Gross! So he heads out Yay. with a skimboard in search of answers. It makes note of the fact that he wears his helmet, elbow pads, and knee pads. After all, I love that they put that in there. After all, it says, as he told Devi a dozen times, he was a daredevil, but he wasn't stupid. <gasps> wow. I'm so glad they worked that message in there in this horror story about kids yep. whose entire planet got genocided, and now they live with their shifty uncle, and they're staying with a dude called Chewed, and... No. Yeah, but 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 at least they're wearing knee pads. Now, I said he was looking for answers. Actually, he's just going to go do stunts. He's going to see how far he can do a vertical ride, which is when you ride straight up a wall. Well, that's stupid. I know. Does he, when, he, when he's doing it, does he listen to like, here I am doing everything I can. Yeah, he's probably listening to Ska for sure. He's definitely listening to Ska. So he blasts his skimboard toward the Don't Go Wins wall way too fast and ends up flipping upside down and leads head first. Cool <laughs> trick. <laughs> well, thank God. Maybe that's why they specified he was wearing a helmet. So as he gets used to his new concussion, he wipes his eyes and looks up, and he sees none other than Smart of the Hut! Ew! Chapter 10. This planet sucks. Smata says he's going to kidnap Tosh and kill Zack to make a point to Uncle Hool. But before he can do that, Bebo comes out yelling about, Doom! We're all doomed! So Smata and his ganks try to shut him up by shooting at him. Yeah, okay, okay, good. But even though they shoot at him multiple times at point blank, none of the shots hit Bebo. That's weird, Ryan. Yeah. You know what? 
This story is kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Then Uncle Hul shows up with uh, Tosh and DV9 and an angry mob of villagers wielding blasters. Ooh. And Smada decides to cut his losses and leave. That's number two. He's That's been, number two. He's been smited, right? He's been, yes. Uncle Hul has to leave again for more mysterious business. Oh, where are you going? He just shows up like every once in a while to tell the kids how much everybody in the town hates them. Pretty and much. like, and the F's off again. Yep. He leaves DV9 to babysit while Tosh questions Bebo. I can't say I'm any happier than you are, DV in tone. I'd rather be kind the sand fleas on a nerf. He hates this. Literally everybody hates these kids, up to and including the robot that was specifically designed to hang out no, with no, these no, kids. No, 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 no. He wasn't designed. He was, he's an anthropology droid. Oh, okay. Then yeah, the, 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 yeah, this yeah. is well, well below his pay grade. Bebo drags Tosh and DV9 off to see something weird, and Zach goes to tune his hoverboard because it was kind of going. To, Chewie made it a little bit too fast. Let's make it a little bit slower. <laughs> Do you think Chewie was maybe like? I think you want to kill this kid. This kid. <laughs> That's how much everybody hates them. <laughs> so Zach gets out his tools when a shadow falls over him, and a moment later he's gone. <gasps> Meanwhile, Bebo leaves Tosh to a big tree with a hole in the ground and shoves her into it. Oh my god! Chapter eleven. It's okay. Bebo comes down too. No big deal. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! Now that is our That's true goosebumps. That is goosebumps. It's an abandoned underground laboratory, and this is where Bebo's been living. He has holographs of Lonnie, who is an actual woman, who it turns out also survived the crash. Oh, Bebo, wait! But he has holographs of her. He has pictures of her. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So that shows that the report is a lie. At least two people survived. But where's the real Lonnie? That's the thing. He she disappeared. He said. Bebo takes Tosh deeper, and a feeling of dread in Tosh grows. They reach a huge room with a pit in the middle, so deep the bottom cannot be seen. There is a winch for lowering things or people into it. Tosh knows there's some faded imperial insignias on the wall, and then something roars! <laughs> is it Hool? It's DV9 playing the sound of a crate dragon to freak out Bebo. <laughs> I can only hope it's the, like, the man yelling version. <laughs> <laughs> when he calms down, he shows Tosh uh, a crystal device that he's wearing, Bebo, on his neck. Uh, he says it gives him protection from things. It has, it has some kind of energy field about it that protects him from stuff. Okay. Which explains why the blasters didn't hit him. He's got this magic crystal. No, actually, I'm wearing a force field all around me so your blaster can't hit me. Yeah, exactly. Actually? So it turns out, Bebo reveals that there was actually 20 people who survived the crash. And they all disa- And they disappeared one by one. Tosh and DV9 go to find Uncle Hul and tell him what's up, and Bebo gives him his pendant as protection. Take my crystal. It'll help you. But after they leave, Bebo leans over the pit and sees something move. But then a gang killer sneaks up behind and knocks him into the pit. Bebo! These ganks are everywhere. Where was his force field on that one? They gave it to Tosh and DV9. I just said that. Oh my god. Yeah. On the way back, Tosh hears the same slurping noise from before. DV9 does too. They sneak toward the clearing he's coming from and see... A bunch of enzine. And chewed. And his long, snake-like tongue plunged into the earth, slurping. Ew! But it's the earth, right? It's not like a... But he's got this, like, python tongue coming out of his mouth, slurping the earth. Hey, chewed, your tongue's real long. It really is. Tasha's noticed by the enzine, and they capture her in DV9. She focuses her mind. Imagine pushing them away with the Force. He kind of wants to be a Jedi someday, you see. She reads a lot of Jedi stuff. And okay, like, cool. You know. But she doesn't. she's not actually Force-sensitive, so... Well, she she's, like, sees the future and stuff, but like she's not Force-sensitive. Oh, okay. No, not like all. That, that's not a Force power at all. Instead of pushing them away, she reaches this large consciousness that's even larger than the planet itself. And then an earthquake happens. <gasps> she gets away and runs to town, shouting for help, but the town is completely empty. 
Chapter 13. No twist here. Everyone is really gone. I like occasionally there's not an actual twist. She goes to the spaceport and finds not only Zack's skimboard, but a bowl of Smada's eels. So he puts two and two together and figures, okay, Zack's been kidnapped by Smada. Oh, yeah. he's been trying to do, right? Oh, yeah. She goes to Smada's fortress, which is on the outskirts of town, and the gang's let her in, pat her down, make sure she doesn't have any weapons on her. She demands to see Zack, who's butt out of his cage temporarily. Smada doesn't care about the missing townsfolk. He just wants that Shido. He wants that Uncle Hool. Yeah, Shido. Give me your uncle. Shido, lay that good, 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 good Shido on me. He gives Tosh an offer. Tell me where your uncle is or your bro's going to die. That's not an offer. That's an ultimatum. It's a trade. You it's know? a trade. Okay. Chapter 14. Tosh doesn't actually know where Uncle Hul is. He's very mysterious. Oh, okay. Bye, Zach. But just before she can say anything, a roar fills the palace. Is it that freaking recording again? It's DV9 and the crate Dragon again. All right, but, you know, in this case, he did something useful. And he brought the skimboard with him. He tossed it to Tosh, and her and Zack and DV skimboard out of there. Here I am, getting older all the time. Getting older all the time, feeling younger in my mind. Just put, like, some um, generic ska music over it. Okay. It's all good. But Smada shoots the skimboard on the way out, and they crash just outside the palace. Zack feels something grab him in the darkness, but it stops when Tosh grabs him. It's night all of a sudden, too, which is really weird. It was early evening before, and now it's pitch black nighttime. And Zack is whimpering to Tosh, Don't let me go! Something grabbed him in the dark until he touched Tosh, who was wearing the necklace. Right. Oh! Smada <laughs> catches up with his goons to Tosh and Zack, but as the gang steps forward, he vanishes with a scream. Oh no! Nothing's left, not even a footprint. Then another gang steps forward, and this time they see it. A hole opens up underneath him and swallows him before snapping shut. Oh my lord, what is this hole? The hole opened and ate him, basically. Oh, it's the planet that's devouring, the, isn't it? The rest of the gangs realize the ground isn't safe, and they try to climb onto Smada's hover sled. He knocks them off with his tail, and the ground eats them, too. <gasps> All this time I thought it was the Enzines that were devouring? Yeah. It's the planet, isn't it? Then Chewed and the Enzines show up. Yeah, Smada and Chewed. I'll be Smada. Okay. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Jude, what is going on here? You're doomed. Bah! This is some trick of yours. There is a beast, a creature that tunnels under the ground and hides. The beast does not hide. Then where is the beast? Where? All the Enzine chuckled. As it had before, Chude's smile became evil. After all this time, do you still not understand? The secret of Devarin has escaped you. You think you will be eaten by a creature beneath the planet. You do not realize you will be eaten by the planet itself! Oh, shit. Some good improv there, there Joanna. Yeah. Chapter 18. That was good, yes, and. <laughs> yeah. <right> <laughs> Smana tries to bargain with Chude for his life. He's like, I'll give you two million credits. I'll give you the kids. Chude says that the Devourin cannot be controlled and that will never be sated. The Enzine feed the planet and the planet feeds them via their slurpy tongues. Okay. Like parasites on a host, their goal is to serve. So they kind of are eating sentient beings, though. Like if the planet is breaking down the sentient mm-hmm, creatures. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's kind of messed up, guys. The Enzine bundle up the kids and Smada and, the, and DV9 in nets and hang them above the ground. Chu takes the pendant off Tasha's neck and tells them they'll be taken to the heart of Devourin. Mm. Three guesses where part of Devourin is. On uh, the core of the planet. It's that pit. Oh, it's that pit that they couldn't find the bottom of. Yep. The Bebo got pushed into. So, yep. so Bebo dead. He says, there you will meet a death that makes these other deaths seem like a gift. Oh my god, I'm so glad Hool decided to leave his young wards with Jude. In the heart of devouring, every last nutrient from your body can be carefully digested. You'll be eaten very slowly, eaten alive. The title of this book. 
God. So they go to the pit, chapter 17. Chud reveals that this is all an Imperial project gone awry, and it ate everyone involved. Ooh. And the Enzine managed to survive by feeding the planet. So the Imperial forces came up with this great plan. Yeah. Will we make a planet that eats people? Now think about this. Step one, planet that eats people. Step two? Step three, profit. Think about a planet that can eat other planets? Yes. That'd be bonkers. I suppose, but if you can't control it, then... I mean, what are you going to do with it when it's eating all the planets that you wanted it to eat? Press up a drink to it. Boy, they really fly by the seat of their pants in the Empire. They really do. The Enzine take Zach's skin board in, so they have nothing on them. They don't have their board. They don't got their necklace. The kids and DV9 and Smada are all dangling over this pit. Dang. By that winch, right? Ling. But then, the Enzine with the skin board bashes Chewed over the head and takes the pendant back. (gasps) Then it changes shape into a Wookiee? Oh my god, it is Uncle Hool. It's Uncle Hool, baby. He fights off the ending and tries to stop the crane from lowering, but is struck from behind and reverts to his regular Shido form. Chute struggles with Hool and takes the pendant back, but then loses his footing and falls into the pit, swallowing him and the pendant whole. Oh no! So the pit has now eaten Chude, it's eaten Bebo, it's eaten the pendant. A lava-like mass below begins to rise up, because now, having eaten the pendant, Devourin is pissed. Didn't like that pendant. No, it's got this energy field that, that uh, deflects it. Oh, no. It can't digest it, so it's freaking out. It's got indigestion. Chapter 18. Hool tosses Zack his skinboard, and he and Tosh get on it. Smata tries to get on, too. It's huge hut. <laughs> Smata, why? And shove the kids off, but he slips and is eaten by the devourer. Everybody knows huts can't board. That's what happens. His weight pulled the skinboard into the pit too deeply to fly out normally, so Zack knows what he has to do. X Games. Oh man! It's time for a vertical ride, baby. Indy nose ride. Radical. Now this is higher than any vertical ride him or any of his friends have ever done. He's really nervous about this. He launches out of the pit with his sister, but since they the pendant, Devourin is really going nuts and eating the lab as well. The board won't fit more than the kids in DV, so Uncle Holters into a white mouse and they escape with him in their pocket. Oh, see, yeah, that's useful. So they stunt out. They got oh, they got everything going on the surface. The whole planet has gone to hell. Those beautiful forests and oceans are now boiling with lava and rising mud, and the sky is turning black. It's horrible, horrible. Oozing Earth is rushing towards them as they reach the Light Runner. But when they get there, the Light Runner's uh, landing gear is already being eaten by the Earth. Oh God being swallowed and they're pretty much doomed at this point they're basically kind of like oh well I guess we're gonna eat my devouring yeah. but then the Millennium Falcon shows up oh my god they came back they scramble up through the lower hatch on the Falcon and tell Han to punch it but they can't seem to break out of orbit because devouring is following them the planet is following them the yes. planet can migrate like that's how they got there 15 minutes early oh my god because it moved it moved it sucks in sucks in uh, spacers oh my god pretty weird huh Han pulls a risky move and turns back toward the planet, slingshotting around the far side and getting the hell out of there. They look behind to see Devourin squirming, getting smaller, and then vanishing as it eats itself alive. So wait, so, wow. So was that always a contingency that it could end up eating itself alive? Apparently if it ate this this, uh, repulsion field or something. Oh, okay, so I guess I didn't give the Empire enough credit, because I thought that they just built this, like... Endlessly planet. hungry planet that would eat other planets, and then like you know they'd cross the bridge when they came to it in terms of actually stopping it. So you know you got you got a ventilation shaft on the Death Star, you got a little crystal necklace on Devourin. It's easy. There's an epilogue after this. Okay, it got away safely, and all is safe. But light years away on the outer rim, a mining ship is making the rounds when suddenly all the miners drop out of hyperspace with a jolt. Oh, what's going on? Oh. They're looking around where they are, and suddenly they see a beautiful blue-green planet. Oh, bum, bum, bum. no! 
So that is Galaxy of Fear, eaten alive. You know, I don't understand. What's that? Okay, so this planet was, like, created by the Empire, yeah. apparently? Wait, so what... How did it have indigenous people? Where did the Enzine come from originally, They then? talk about that in, in the chapter 20 a little bit. Yeah? Like, as they kind of reflect, and they think... They say, well, maybe the Enzine were there originally, or maybe they emigrated there and managed to form a symbiotic relationship with the planet. That's just the authors being like, ah, eh, we don't know. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's there, we don't know, whatever. <laughs> maybe, maybe the Empire created them, too. They formed a... Oh, maybe. They're basically parasites. On, they're basically fleas on the back of a big... Dog. The, yeah, it's possible the Empire just made, like, all these dudes. Yeah. Uh, uh, step three profit? I don't know why they would do that. But... And I don't know why it took me so long to catch this, but the guy's name is Chewed, and the planet eats people. Hey, Chewed, your name's a pun. Yeah, it is. But you didn't get it. I didn't catch it till then. I didn't get it either. I okay. just thought it was a, a very, very stupid name. So, what do you think? Should I read more Galaxy Yeah, here? actually. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's better than freaking Jedi Prince. I think the books are insanely better. You still got Zack, who's kind of a Ken-type character. Yeah, well, okay, he is, except, like, Ken couldn't even board. But got- Ken couldn't even X Games. Like, if he tried to do a vertical whatever, like, indie nose bone yeah. 460, he would beef it. Like, you kind of, they kind of split Ken into, like, two characters here. Like, he got really everything annoying in Zack. Yes. And he got all the cool Force stuff in Tosh. Yes, that's basically what She made did. an earthquake by using the Force. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our scary tale for this week. Hope you are haven't peed yourself too much. Hope you're not even looking at your shadow behind you, jumping at it because it was so scary. Hope you're not looking at the ground, preparing to be eaten, or thinking that there may be some kind of evil spirit inside of a corpse in your bed. You want to know what's really spine-tingling? Names that are really bad. Yeah. The worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst name challenge. That seemed like an extended mix. Yeah, I know. I really wanted to savor it. Like, sink my teeth into it that time. Okay. All right. Last week, we had Groin, Father of Gloin. Yes, the returning champion. And we had the alternate name for Starkiller, Darth Icky. Darth Icky. Had they gone that way of making him a Darth, they would have been contractually obligated to call him Darth Icky. Or Darth Insanius. But or Darth, Darth Icky is a lot funnier. So, the votes are in, and we got a new champion. Darth Icky. Darth Icky won, huh? Darth Icky has... Defeated Groin in this battle of champions. It was fairly close, but now we have to see who's going to face Darth Icky. I feel duty bound to point out that Darth Icky isn't technically canon. A lot of people did point that out, and I don't care. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't either because I definitely plan on using ones that aren't canon later on, so, like, okay. I'm not going to okay. make a stick of it. But today, I'm going to use somebody who is canon. Okay, who is it? He's from The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Oh, the most canon source there the most is. The most canon source there is. The OG sources came out before Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. His Who name, is it? Lay it on me. His name is Perry the Winkle Boy. No. <laughs> yes, it is. Perry the Winkle Boy? Perry the Winkle Boy. It's Who is Perry so the Winkle Perry. Boy? His name is technically Perry the Winkle, but at least once uh, Tom Bombadil calls him Perry the Winkle Boy, and that is incredible, so we're going to list it as that. So he's like this little hobbit kid who goes on an adventure with a lonely troll, and the troll calls him Oh Perry the Winkle Boy at least once, so that's why we're listening to <laughs> that Can we hear this way. one of the poem? Yes, here we go. 
Oh, Perry the Winkle Boy, he cried. Come, you're the lad for me. Now if you're willing to take a ride, I'll carry you home to tea. He jumped on his back and held on tight, and off you go, said he. And the Winkle had a feast that night and sat on the old troll's knee. Young Winkle, where have you been, they said. I've been to a fulsome tea. And I feel so fat, for I have fed on some bread, said he. But where, my lad, in the shire was that? or out in Bree, said they. But Winkle, he up and answered flat, I ain't a-going to say. <laughs> I also want to point out that in the next verse, there is a character called Peeping Jack. Oh my god. Yes. This poem is loaded. This poem is fully loaded. But I will say, I think Tolkien's a pretty good poet. That's a pretty charming little verse there. Yeah. Oh no, it's adorable. It's absolutely adorable. And the ending of the poem is that Perry the Winkle Boy... He had tea every single Thursday with this troll, and eventually he became extremely fat. And that's the end. Wow. Okay. That, so, Perry the Winkle Boy. Now, that is beautiful. I kind of, I really like that name. Yeah. So, we got Darth Icky and Perry the Perry Winkle, the Winkle Boy. Boy. Cast your votes now. Yep. You can do it on our Facebook, What's Lightsabers Precious, or you can do it on our Twitter, What Lightsabers. You can email us, What's Lightsabers Precious, at gmail.com. And you won't be able to vote there, but you can always go to our website. It's uh, World Wide Web, www.whatslightsabersprecious.commercial, or com, as the plebs say. Yeah, if you like what you heard, you can rate us up on iTunes or tell a buddy, tell a fellow nerd, say, hey, this, this podcast scared the pants off me, and I think it's going to scare your pants off, too. I will watch, I promise. You can do that, if you're a pervert. But do it. I said I was, you weren't going to watch. Well, but we all know what you're... We all know what's going on. You know though. you're going to... We gonna, all know listen, what you're doing. You're going to see your bug is scared his pants you're off. Just, you're going to you're gonna peek through those fingers, you? just want to see your friend with no pants on. It's fine. We all do it. You're going to be real peeking jack, aren't you? Yeah, peeping jack. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we have for this week, isn't it, Ryan? It is. That's it. All right, guys. Well, in that case, we'll see you next week for week two of Spooky October. Too spooky. Bye, guys. 